shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall never surrender. At this moment, Winston Churchill's words seem especially poignant. I'm Joe Campo, a professor of history, and this is the Harvest of Mars podcast, which will explore the history of warfare. In our first episode, the main theme I will highlight is a distinct lack of historical understanding of just what war entails that we have in U.S. culture, and is especially prevalent at the political military leadership. Every year, I teach courses on the Second World War and the Holocaust, so I see firsthand what American college students know, or more accurately, what they have not been told. And listening to the news and seeing social media, it definitely reinforces my impression that Americans, on the whole, have been way too comfortable at the prospect of war. People need to demand that policymakers answer hard questions. I will tackle the question of Moscow's perspective in the next episode, as the past three weeks would seem to indicate it even has less of a grasp of military affairs. Okay, anecdote time. T.E. Lawrence, the British archaeologist who became acclaimed as Lawrence of Arabia for his role in the Arab Revolt during World War I, once remarked in a letter that, quote, with 2,000 years of examples behind us, we have no excuse when fighting for not fighting well. End quote. He was, of course, correct, and even more so than he realized. Lawrence referenced 2,000 years of examples. I would contend we have 4,000 years, twice as long, and we still haven't learned. Last August, when the world's sole superpower lost a two-decade war against Taliban fighters who count Toyota trucks as a key weapon system, I began changing my classroom lectures because how could I not? U.S. policymakers and its military brass have 4,000 years of history to draw from and used weapons that would have been considered science fiction not that long ago. And yet, on the news, we once again saw helicopters evacuate a U.S. embassy, what had to be deja vu for those old enough to remember the fall of Saigon. Well, I thought at least my students would be more historically literate when it came to war. Now, Barely six months later, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine threatening a nightmare World War III scenario, I have decided to start this Harvest of Mars podcast so it's not just my students who can learn from the 40-plus years I've spent studying war. As much as I enjoyed playing Fallout New Vegas, I'd rather not actually have to live through it. Just in the first three weeks of the Russia-Ukraine war, it's clear there has been a series of miscalculations and erroneous assumptions made on all parties, the U.S., NATO, and of course, Russia. The North European plane has historically been used by West European armies as an invasion route into Russia, the most recent resulting in a death of 25 million Soviet citizens during World War II. That's 25 million. In the aftermath of the Second World War, NATO was established as a military alliance to counter a military threat from the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union is long gone, but NATO is still with us, as is Moscow's perception that NATO is acting against its interests. In 2008, 
the U.S. pushed NATO to open its doors to consider including Georgia and Ukraine into the alliance. And Ukraine is right smack in the middle of that North European plane. No regime in Moscow, whether czarist or communist or Putin's, was ever going to accept what it believed was a security threat in Ukraine. Never. George Kennan, the U.S. diplomat whose famous long telegram article did so much to shape Cold War policy, presciently warned that NATO expansion was, quote, a strategic blunder of potentially epic proportions, end quote. Other distinguished scholars, ranging from John Mearsheimer to Noam Chomsky, voice similar strong reservations. As the United States literally has a doctrine that holds any intervention in the political affairs of an entire hemisphere as ostensibly a hostile act and came so close to sparking World War III during the Cuban Missile Crisis, one would think that policymakers in Washington would be sensitive to such concerns. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Now, none of this justifies the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which fits into the historical pattern of a declining great power feeling itself compelled to embark on a military solution. Such acts usually reek of desperation and have their origins in miscalculation. Western reports had placed the number of Russian troops mobilized on the Ukrainian border at about 190,000. While that did represent a show of force, I was struck by how small of a troop count that was if Moscow actually planned an invasion. Hell, the Soviet Union sent in a quarter of a million men against Czech students and protesters during the Prague Spring in 1968. From a historical perspective, the forces on the Ukrainian border were rather modest and nowhere near large enough to fulfill any grand ambitions that Putin might have had. The U.S. marshaled about the same number of troops for its Iraq invasion in 2003. And while it wasn't that difficult to dispatch Iraq's Republican Guard, occupying, policing, and administering the country proved far beyond the means available. And that's not even considering some 40,000 British allies to help them or that the U.S. did not face any economic sanctions. Ukraine is 50% larger than Iraq. In the Second World War, when Germany invaded Poland, it had about one and a half million soldiers, and it still took them about a month to capture Warsaw in a military campaign that literally defined the term Blitzkrieg. Germany had about 75 million people to draw upon. Russia today has over 140 million, yet has marshaled less than 20% of the proverbial boots on the ground. To make a further comparison, during the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, Prussia invaded with 450,000 men. That's more than twice the size of the Russian forces that were on Ukraine's border. And that was from a population of just 32 million. So governments and armies today are under the impression that technology, automation, and precision weapons can perform tasks that used to require hundreds of thousands of troops. That's all well and good for maybe fighting a battle or destroying specific targets. But extensive campaigning and occupying a hostile population requires a lot more than iPhones and smart bombs. I think it's clear that Moscow underestimated the military and economic obstacles in launching this war. Despite them having an initiative, they failed to attain air superiority 
And there's enough abandoned vehicles and military hardware to outfit a small army. And they certainly undervalued the collective middle finger the Ukrainians have so far given them. Either the Russian military has failed to learn from those 4,000 years of lessons, or Putin has surrounded himself with yes-men who failed to ask him politically inconvenient hard questions. Now, ultimately, the tragedy here is that the Ukrainian people are the ones paying the price for miscalculations made by other nations. Welcome to real history, which is more pitiless even than you had been told it was. Many of these errors in judgment that have brought about the misery we're all seeing on TV and social media are rooted in historical ignorance, specifically about war. So this podcast will be an introduction of sorts into T.E. Lawrence's spot-on observation that with thousands of years of examples behind us, we have no excuse for not understanding the essentials of warfare. And I'm going to focus on the United States this episode since it has such an overwhelming influence on international affairs. I think U.S. military ignorance goes deeper than the damning fact that there is a clear pattern of the nation starting wars against far weaker adversaries that still somehow manages to lose. This is a far cry from the depiction in the movie Patton, in which the famous general boasts that Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. In the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, let's take two public comments made by highly educated people entrusted to make decisions in the United States. Congresswoman Madeline Dean hosted a telephone town hall where she asked, why is it that the Afghan government abandoned the country? And why is it that their military didn't really have the ability or the will to fight? These two questions reveal a fundamental lack of military understanding. Dean is highly educated. She was a lawyer, a profession that requires a lot of brain power. And yet she's fishing for answers to what I think are basic historical questions. More telling, General Mark Milley, who is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, remarked in an interview, and I'm quoting here, there was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army or this government in 11 days. How is this possible? This is the highest ranking soldier in the U.S. Army. Milley has claimed to read Mao and Lenin. If he's read both, and actually retain them, there's no excuse how he made such an erroneous conclusion because Lenin and Mao were both quite specific about the connection between an army and a political regime that governed it. Hell, Mao wrote the proverbial textbook on how to conduct the sort of warfare the Taliban was fighting against the United States. One side correctly applied those lessons, and it wasn't the one represented by the man who boasted during testimony in Congress that he had read Mao. If you want to dive deeper into the 20-year nightmare of political and military folly that was Afghanistan, then Craig Whitlock's recent book, The Afghanistan Papers, is where you should go. But I want to talk about a concern that I think is even a greater damning indictment of military obliviousness the connection between suicides and U.S. military personnel. It has been well documented that since the war on terror began in 2001, 
Far more Americans who currently or formerly in the military have taken their own life than have been killed due to enemy action, about 30,000 to 7,000. That's over four times as many. Think about that. U.S. servicemen and women faced a far greater threat from themselves than IEDs, Taliban fighters, Iraqi insurgents, and car bombs combined. This would be much easier to show with the chart that I use for my classes, but I will do my best as I throw these numbers out at you. Since 2001, veterans have had a significantly higher suicide rate than non-veterans. In 2018, veterans had a 28 per 100,000 suicide rate as compared to a non-veteran rate of 18 per 100,000. That's more than 50% greater. Now you might think, hey, this makes intuitive sense. Serving in the army during a time of war is traumatic. We know this. Well, we think we know this, but we really don't. If we want to learn from the proverbial lessons of history, we need to see if the evidence holds up to the intuitive answer. In this case, it doesn't. Before the so-called endless wars on terror, suicide rates in the army were actually lower than the nation. In 1999, the suicide for rates for males in the United States was 10.5 per 100,000. In the military, it was nine. So both have gone up, but the military much more so. But according to records we have going back to 1819, the pattern is that suicides in the military decreased during wartime. Let me repeat that. Historically, suicides have decreased during wartime. In fact, the most terrible war fought in human history, World War II, suicides in the military were an all-time low, just five per 100,000. And this wasn't just a U.S. phenomenon. British research showed a marked decrease of psychological ailments during the Blitz when Londoners ventured into the underground every night to shelter from Nazi bomber attacks. This historical pattern has changed during the Vietnam War, which seems to have changed many things in military affairs. For comparison's sake, during the war on terror, the suicide rate for military personnel and veterans have fluctuated between 20 and 30 per 100,000. That's very high. Something is very different. Consulting literature by mental health experts, there is evidence to support the hypothesis that combat itself does not increase in attempted suicide rates. Of particular note are a series of studies by psychiatrist H.A. Lyons, who investigated mental ailments and suicides during the worst of the civil violence in Belfast and Northern Ireland during the 1960s and 1970s. Lyons noted that suicide rates in Belfast dropped 50% during the peak of the riots. His research also showed a significant decrease in depressive illness in the most violent districts. By way of comparison, the most peaceful county in Northern Ireland, Down, had large and significant rise of depression in males. Lyons hypothesized that it was the inability to actively assist their comrades in the violence and to be relegated to the proverbial cheerleaders that led to this spike. This may seem backwards, 
that people away from the violence would be more depressed. But it squares with what the renowned sociologist Emile Durkheim's observation that suicide rates dropped during periods of war and revolution in 19th century Europe. So we've not only failed to learn from history, but we've somehow reversed the historical trend and made things worse. All of this falls under the larger rubric of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the clinical term referring to mental ailments brought about by experiencing or witnessing trauma. My goal here is to highlight the failures of the United States to deal with mental health problems suffered by its soldiers who have been sent off to experience the horrors of war and do violence on behalf of politicians and so-called journalist experts who sleep peacefully in their beds at night. How were things in the past? It's significant that the origins of our understanding of PTSD can be dated to 1915 during the First World War, when British psychologist Charles Myers published an article using the term shell shock to describe mental symptoms suffered by soldiers who were not physically injured. So did soldiers before the 20th century suffer from PTSD? Of course they did. PTSD is a human response to trauma and combat is very traumatic. PTSD has a complex mix of causes, and there is a wide spectrum of severity, meaning it can be severe or mild. Also, it's treatable, and factors such as meaningful engagement with a community seem to help. When I compare and contrast ancient warrior societies and the modern-day United States, I can absolutely see why American vets suffer far greater from PTSD. Modern industrial societies tend to be alienating. They're individualistic as opposed to communal. And we now live in a society in which your neighbors will scour through your social media to dig up something from 20 years ago to destroy your life just because of a political disagreement. This does not even get into that U.S. soldiers have recently been sent into wars that have been characterized by defeat, uncertainty of purpose, and regret. By contrast, the ancients and societies such as the Mongols, Zulu, Vikings, Maori, Apache, and the Mayenga had a much more authentic understanding of warfare and thus better prepared its societies to cope with war's miseries and lessen the effects of PTSD. Some of this is no doubt because these societies are much more attuned to the hardened realities that entailed just basic survival. In pre-industrial societies, one-third of children died before the age of six, and the average life expectancy was barely 30. They had proverbial thicker skins, they were more accustomed to anguish and death, and they had far fewer social mores against violence. But perhaps the most important difference is these societies fought wars in which the burdens and suffering were shared by both warriors and non-combatants. It's this last point I want to focus on, what philosopher Austin Dacey observed was a shared public meaning of the war. For the vast majority of time Homo sapiens have spent on the planet, we have lived in small bands in which everyone knew each other and had to cooperate or else we'd be literally cat food for predators looking to pounce on the old, the young, and the infirm. When war came, and with the evidence of ancient massacres at sites like Talheim and Lake Turkanet, it probably was fairly regular. It was fought right where they slept. 
So the literal survival of the entire community was at stake. There was no such thing as civilians. Prisoners were almost always killed. Homes and food stores were destroyed. There was no concept of a war crime. That is warfare, stripped to its essentials. The murder of enemies, the destruction of their sustenance, and scaring the shit out of them so as to inhibit their response. For most of human history, to lose a war meant the entire community might be enslaved, eaten, raped, tortured, richly sacrificed, or just plain killed. This illustrates what anthropologist Lawrence Keeley wrote in his perceptive book, War Before Civilization. Quote, the most important and universal rule of war, do not lose, end quote. For those societies, everyone had a shared experience, and thus warriors, non-combatants, and chieftains knew exactly what war entailed. They understood each other. Fast forward to the U.S. war in Afghanistan, what one public commentator called the 1% war because 99% of Americans only paid attention to it 1% of the time. American politicians, journalists, public commentators could safely ignore the war going on thousands of miles away because they had an ahistoric privilege in which they were not only insulated from the dangers of war, but also lived lavish lifestyles the ancients would have thought them to be gods. If the United States lost, those people who slept peacefully in their beds would not be enslaved, eaten, or ritually sacrificed. Ignorance is bliss. The most important rule of war no longer applied to the United States. Though you can be damn sure the Afghans, of whom tens of thousands of non-combatants were killed in crossfires, drone strikes, and what euphemistically gets categorized as collateral damage have a much more profound understanding of war, which is probably a significant factor in explaining why they won. The point here is that currently U.S. soldiers, civilians, and politicians do not have a shared experience, which I think does a lot to explain the failings of the U.S. political military leadership and the skyrocketing cases of mental ailments suffered by its veterans. For those societies with a shared public meaning, warriors and non-combatants have an easily understood context for their wartime burdens and can easily communicate them with everybody. It was not necessary for them to reintegrate into a cold civilian world that had completely different social norms because there was no cold civilian world. Everybody had shared that experience, and those who fought would resume their roles as hunters and providers in everyday life. For more perspective on this contrast, I recommend Sebastian Junger's TED Talk, Why Veterans Miss War. Think about it. When you say, thank you for your service, then you are implying that such a divide between military and civilian exists. Presumably, you're thanking them because you didn't serve and you didn't share in a war experience. It's bad enough that there is a sharp disconnect between civilian society and the military in which neither understands each other. But according to a 2018 Army survey, 43% of military families reported not feeling a sense of belonging to their military community. Let me repeat that. 
nearly half of U.S. military families don't feel a sense of belonging to their fellow military community. This simply should not be possible. 4,000 years ago on the Eurasian steppe, the Proto-Indo-Europeans had figured out how to forge a ceremonial bonding among their young unmarried males into what was known as a chorios, a warband that survived and thrived despite being exiled and left literally naked, having only their weapons and relying on each other to survive. Considering the Indo-European languages are spoken from India to Ireland, it's obvious this is a very effective ritual. We have already figured out how to forge a military community. If you want an example of the blatant disregard for the wisdom of the ancients, go ahead and Google the most recent U.S. Army recruitment ads, and you'll see they are centered on I, me, and my. What T.E. Lawrence wrote almost a century ago is more relevant than it ever has been. I should say, there is a difference when looking at the U.S. political and military establishment as a whole and the individual U.S. soldier. U.S. soldiers are highly trained, highly professional, and highly competent. The faults and the collective military ignorance responsible for the lost wars and their mental ailments lay at the top, the ones making policy. What this basically means that if I were a Taliban fighter, I would want nothing to do with getting into a firefight against a squad of U.S. soldiers. But I would have 100% confidence that in the long run, American politicians and generals will make enough mistakes and poor decisions to lose. There's an old military adage that basically sums it up as lions led by donkeys. As of March 18th, 2014, the United States has opted for a policy of military neutrality in the Ukraine-Russia war. Washington is going to have to make extremely delicate and difficult decisions that should scare you. Fortunately, the Ukrainians have demonstrated they have learned a thing or two from 4,000 years of military history and are fighting their asses off such that the U.S. at least has some breathing room for a measured response. There are two sides to every story, and that means I'm going to have to take a deep dive into Russian military history to try to get a sense of what led to Moscow's miscalculations and what so far has been a second-rate showing. That will be for next episode, but I will drop a little tease. While the Soviet Union's Red Army was adept at snuffing out Hungarian revolutionaries and kept NATO strategists up at night, its historical track record in shooting wars was quite mixed. In 1920, an advancing Red Army was stopped cold by Polish forces at the Battle of Warsaw. In 1939, the Soviet Union invaded its small northern neighbor Finland and got punched in the mouth by farmers and woodsmen. During the 1980s, the Soviets had their version of Vietnam in losing to the Afghan Mujahideen. World War II, in which the Soviet Red Army fought tenaciously and skillfully in defeating the vaunted German Wehrmacht, is something of an outlier. Why the uneven record? Morale and having a legitimate cause to fight for are absolutely crucial for effective military operations. Research has consistently shown that soldiers know when they are being fed bullshit and when they are fighting for their homes and their families. 
The Soviet invasions against Poland, Finland, and Afghanistan were wars waged against small countries that posed no military threat to the Soviet heartland. By contrast, the Nazi regime literally waged a Vernichtungskrieg, or a war of annihilation, hence the 25 million Soviet dead from the Second World War. In what the Soviet Union called the Great Patriotic War, the Soviets knew their cause was just. Like the ancients, Soviet soldiers and civilians shared in the death and destruction wrought by the invaders. That is a fascinating contrast, and we'll look into that and other aspects of Russian military history next week. <laughs> 